a well-known creed. I'm sure you've heard it. Reads, in part, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. This comes from the Apostles' Creed, written in the late 4th century. And the Creed goes on to declare more of Christ, His resurrection from the dead, His ascension to heaven, His return from heaven to earth, and more of the Holy Spirit also, uh, including the nature and future of the church. It is a historical creed. It is a oft-recited creed. It is well known. But what, what's interesting to me, at least today, at least this week, is that along with the mention of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the only other names mentioned in this creed are Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Pilate, who crucified Jesus. The former is forever blessed, while the latter lives on in eternal infamy. And I share this today because in John 18, we're introduced to Pontius Pilate for the first time. Thus far in this chapter, we've witnessed the betrayal of Christ by one of his own disciples, the rejection of Christ by his own Jewish people, and the denial of Christ by perhaps his closest friend, betrayed by Judas, rejected by the Jews, denied by Peter, the picture is one of utter abandonment as Jesus approaches the cross to endure its scorn and shame all alone. And we see ourselves in those who betrayed and rejected and denied the Lord. We see our own human condition and the sin nature within. But the point made last week from verses 12 through 27 is that though we fail Him, and we do, though we fail Him, He is faithful still. These events and all that John conveys here are not primarily about our sin and but rather the sinless Savior, not mainly about our failure, but rather the faithfulness of Christ. Our sin and failure, as real and devastating as it is, takes a backseat to Him who is Lord of all and therefore reigns over all. And this theme of Christ's full and faithful Lordship continues in verses 28 and following as Pilate enters the scene. A man who likewise exemplifies our fallen humanity. Our text today can be 
loosely divided, I think, in three parts. Verses 28 through 32, we see the leaders of Israel bring Jesus to Pilate. Verses 33 through the first half of 38 describe some of the conversation that Jesus shared with Pilate. And then the second half of verse 38 through verse 40 show Pilate readdressing the Jews with his own conclusions about Jesus. And along the way, this fact emerges that though truth is off trampled underfoot, God triumphs still. So let's read it together. John 18, beginning at verse 28 through the end of the chapter. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning, and they, did not, they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to, him, to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. And Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Let's pray. Father, we want to recognize and acknowledge that as we come to this place, 
in John's Gospel as we have walked thus far nearly 18 chapters through John's Gospel we come to the very we, 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 we are ever so close to the very epicenter of the Gospel your Gospel to the cross of Jesus Christ on which the eternal Son of God and Lord of all gave His life to save fallen sinners like us. Sinners who are who are fallen and trapped, held in bondage by their sins, sinners who rebel, oppose, defy, outwardly defy your rule and reign, sinners who who remain in ignorance and who choose ignorance over truth, Sinners who would have not a thought of you, if not you, for set your affections upon them, upon us. And so we'd ask God that as we come to this portion of your word again today, that you would speak its truth into our lives. Help us to see ourselves in its pages. These pages. But most of all, help us to see him who endured all the scorn and shame, who even endured the cross. Make us to embrace this Jesus yet again with all that we have and are. We need your help now again today. For his name's sake. Amen. In following the timeline leading to Christ's crucifixion, we know that Jesus was tried by both the Jews and the Romans, by Caiaphas, the high priest, the Jewish high priest, and by Pilate, the Roman prefect at the time. In verse 24, John writes that Annas then set Jesus bound to Caiaphas, but John records nothing of what transpired between Jesus and Caiaphas. We read in Matthew and Luke, however, that Caiaphas charged Jesus with blasphemy, a crime deserving of death by Hebrew law. And then John picks up again in verse 28 by saying simply that Jesus was led then from, from the house of Caiaphas to Pilate's headquarters in Jerusalem, and, and their intent is clear. It's to present Jesus as a threat to Rome so that Pilate would do their dirty work. It was early morning, and the Jews wanted to dispose of Christ quickly, notice, in time 
to eat the Passover meal that same day. And so with this almost unbelievable hypocrisy, they reject Jesus for a righteousness of their own making. Let me explain. Look with me at verse 28. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Do you see the absurdity here? These people would not even step foot inside Pilate's headquarters for fear of defilement before God, yet they are defiling the very Son of God. They are so careful to not compromise the Jewish Passover, yet they are scheming to kill Jesus, who is God's Passover lamb. The Passover, remember, commemorates Jewish deliverance from Egypt centuries prior when God spared His people of certain death by covering them, as it were, by the blood of a sacrificial lamb. The blood of the lamb was, was spread, smeared on the doorposts of their home so that all who safely resided inside the home were graciously saved from death by God. The Passover was a sign that for generations uh, pointed forward to another lamb, to God's lamb who would be slain to deliver God's people. Jesus Christ is this lamb so that every person who is essentially covered by the blood of Jesus resides safely in the house of God forever rescued from sin's bondage and death. You may recall John the Baptist's declaration, his great statement at the very start of Jesus' ministry, when John saw Jesus coming onto the scene, what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, John knew that the Passover lamb pointed to another and he spent the whole of his life preparing the way for Jesus, but not the Jewish authorities here. So committed were these people to the law, to upholding the finer details of the law as they interpreted them, that they missed the whole overarching point to which the law points. Hear this. That we are lawbreakers before God and therefore in need of help from another who alone fulfills God's law perfectly on our behalf. The Lord Jesus Christ. So committed were they, therefore, to their own self-righteousness, they actually reject the righteousness of the one they needed most. How sad, how hypocritical,
critical. You know, hypocrisy is the practice of claiming to have a moral standard that you yourself do not apply. Claiming certain beliefs to which your own behavior does not conform. And so while claiming to worship God, they're seeking to kill the Son of God. And obviously God detests this. God cannot stand the hypocrite. Jesus himself lambastes people like this in Matthew 23 when he calls them out and pronounces woe upon them seven times because they appear one way, but they are another. He calls them, remember, whitewashed tombs. They're like tombs that have been painted white to mask all the dirt and decay. Those who, who, self, who are self-righteous appear like they have it all together, but inside they're still full of rotting flesh and dead bones. And Jesus calls them on it. And we are guilty, people, of the same hypocrisy when we try to appear right before God when, in fact, we're not. When we rail against the sins of others while never admitting our own. When we live like heaven on Sunday, but like hell Monday through Saturday. When we merely go through the religious motions while our hearts are far from Christ. That's why Jesus said elsewhere, I tell you. He's saying, I tell you, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. In other words, unless your righteousness exceeds the apparent righteousness of the most righteous people in your culture, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Why? What's he saying here? His point, he's making the point that appearances may deceive others, but not God. That external works of righteousness don't make you right before God. There must instead, there must first be an internal work of God and His grace. And so how do you know? How do you know if there's been an internal work of God in your life? That's the question. You know by the measure of a transformed life. By whether or not there is brokenness and contrition and true repentance over sin, not blame shifting or denial, by whether there is an increase in humility in your life to the decrease of pride and pridefulness, 
by, by whether your values and convictions are rooted more in the eternal and heavenly reality than in the temporal and earthly by whether your purposes and priorities in life align with God's. In short, you can know, you can know, you can know that there has been an internal work in your life, an internal work of God in your life, by whether or not there is glad surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord. If there is glad surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord, if there is this sense of, Lord Jesus, you are my King. Jesus, I live for you. My every breath comes from you. You sustain my all in all. Jesus, I wake up in the morning and I'm yours. I go throughout my day and I'm yours. I lay down at night and I'm yours. And I'm yours through the watches of the night. If you can come to that place where you can say to Jesus Christ, you are the Lord of my life, you know, you know, you know that that's because God has done a work of grace in your life. And if that's not your desire, if you don't have that sense of, I'm yours. I just urge you and encourage you as someone who cares for you to stop playing around. Stop pretending. Stop living this two-faced life. Stop trying to appear right with God when you're not. These very religious people, these very religious people were giving lip service to God while rejecting the Lordship of Christ. And you just can't do that. You can't separate love for God from love for Jesus. The two go hand in hand. You cannot love God with your lips while your heart is far from Christ. You cannot work your way to God as they were attempting while discarding the work of Christ. You cannot lean upon your own self-righteousness while rejecting His. And the Jews were fooling themselves. Walking not in truth, but in complete falsehood. And as Pilate gets involved, he becomes a willing player in their foolishness. Though hesitant at first, and, 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 and he wants them to handle their own business, verses 29 through 31, Pilate, upon learning that they sought to kill Christ, brings Jesus in to question him himself. And yet what becomes very apparent very quickly is that though Pilate asked the right questions, he refused the right answers. His question in verse 33, Are you the king of the Jews? was probably said with some disdain. By this time, remember, Jesus was no doubt bloodied, Tired, exhausted, really. 
swollen from his night in Gethsemane and his appearances before Annas and Caiaphas where he'd been hit repeatedly. So Pilate's tone was probably, I'm speculating a bit, was probably something like, are you, you, the king of the Jews? You. Really? You? But that he asked the question at all presumes that he'd been told as much, which indeed he had, according to Luke chapter 23. And still instinctively, almost, Pilate senses that something's not right, something doesn't add up. For why would the Jews hand over their own king without cause? And so in verse 35, he presses further by asking, What have you done? And then Jesus, in verse 36, proceeds to answer Pilate's first question, affirming that he is a king, by referring to his kingdom, one that is not of this world. And as to Pilate's second question, what have you done? Jesus speaks in verse 37 of bearing witness to the truth, to which Pilate, I think somewhat sarcastically, retorts in verse 38, what is truth? His response, I think, is just drowning in cynicism. He does not ask, notice, what is the truth? which would suggest that, it, that, that at least he believes in truth on a fundamental level. He just isn't sure where it lies at the moment. Instead, he questions truth itself as though he's saying, Truth? You mean to tell me that you believe in truth? Not me. I think from his perspective, truth either doesn't exist or it's only what you make of it. And thus the whole conversation boils down to what's true and untrue about Jesus as Pilate sees it. And that's the world in which we live, isn't it? One that defines truth on a relative, subjective, case-by-case -case basis, but the devastating effects of this are obvious. As a people, we've lost our moorings while drifting into a sea of confusion. I found this interesting. How many of you know of Josh McDowell? Josh McDowell, as a young man, was a self-professing agnostic who honestly could not care less about Christ or Christianity until one day when confronted by the truth claims of Christ and the vast amounts of evidence to support them, he came to trust in Christ. As Savior and Lord, he came to trust that Jesus is who he said he is. 
And he's spent the better part of his adult life helping thousands and thousands of people do the same. Joining the uh, staff of Campus Crusade for Christ in the early 60s while still working with crew even today. And McDowell says today, he says that it used to be when he was on college campuses speaking with college students, the issue, the, the, the students would debate him over the truth of the Bible, but they would not debate truth itself. Now, however, when he's on these very same campuses, no one even cares about the truth of the Bible. They're debating truth itself. That's the world we live. People today are as cynical and skeptical of truth as Pilate was in his encounter with Jesus. I would be remiss if I didn't at least ask, what about you? And I know that this applies to all ages, but, but I think our younger people maybe are even more susceptible to this. Do you believe in truth? That there is such a thing as right and wrong. And there is a standard by which we can know right from wrong. Do you believe that? Do you adhere to that reality? Do you grab hold of that? The standard is God's law, the Bible, that informs the moral law inside us uh, by which we have each been made, or, or how do I want to say this? This moral law inside us, which we have each been given as those who are made in God's image. And so this law informs this law, right? We're told that God has placed eternity in our hearts. This law, this book, helps the reality of that eternal placement, that heart that longs for eternal truth, helps that to come to fruition, right? And so this is yet another reason why we need to be people who know this book, who know our Bible. You need to be a person who, who knows your Bible because if you're not, you're in danger of just being swept away by the teachings of our day, by these worldly philosophies and, 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 and humanistic doctrines. If you don't know our Bible, you, you're not able to help those who are likewise being swept away. You're not being able to say, no, that's not true. This is true. And I know, as even as I look out this morning, I know that so many of you are so very good at this. But I just want to say to all of us, take time 
to know your Bible. Take time to know your Bible. Begin where you are. Find a plan that works for you. There are so many plans available. There are so many programs available. There are numerous Bible apps available. Craft a plan of your own. Find something that works for you and just take time to learn your Bible. So after speaking with Jesus personally, Pilate in verses 38 through 40 went back to the Jews and said, here's a man who didn't know his Bible. I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to re release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, no, 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 not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. And I just read and reread these few verses this week, really amazed on the one hand by the total guiltlessness of Christ while being equally amazed on the other that Pilate would crucify a man he knew to be innocent. And why would he do such a thing? And then, and then I believe that the Spirit of God brought just to my attention the one small word Sandwiched between Pilate's declaration of Christ's innocence in verse 38 and his request of the Jews in verse 39, this one small three-letter word that I think provides insight into Pilate's heart and helps explain his behavior. It's this word, but. I find no guilt in him. But I have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. And I have to ask, but? Why would he use this word? Wouldn't you expect something different here, a different word entirely? I find no guilt in him, but? But what? If you find no guilt in him, end of story. But is a, is a word used to introduce a contrast, like, I find no guilt in him, but Barabbas is guilty indeed. And in exegetical terms, not that you care about this, it's called a, an illogical contrastive. Pilate's response is completely illogical. Instead of releasing Jesus in whom there is no guilt, he capitulated to the Jews and released guilty Barabbas instead. And he did it because he feared them. 
He feared their response. He feared a political uprising. Normally, Pilate would be back at home, up north in Galilee, in his palace in Caesarea. But because Jerusalem swelled with so many people during Passover and because Pilate was ultimately responsible to Rome to keep things in order. He would relocate to Jerusalem temporarily each year. He'd bring a sizable force of Roman soldiers whose very presence would help keep the peace in effect. Pilate was trying to save his own skin. His denial of truth, specifically the truth of Christ and his corresponding capitulation to the Jews was nothing more than self-preservation, self Preservation is the enemy of truth. Isn't that why people lie? People tell lies to save their own skin. And sometimes those lies, those untruths, those half-truths are just shrouded in what we would call today political correctness. Today we would say that Pilate was simply being politically correct, quite literally, by appeasing the crowd instead of standing for truth. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. We of all people, of all people, we of all people, as those who have been reconciled to God, should lead the way. We should be at the front of the line. We should be leading the way in establishing healthy dialogue over the hot-button issues of our day, ever seeking greater reconciliation. But our cultural adherence to political correctness is often just a nice way of denying truth. Did you hear that? Our cultural adherence to political correctness is often just a nice way of denying truth. As followers of Christ, absolutely, we should set the example in being sensitive and empathetic seeking always to understand a person's story and why they think and behave the way they do. But we should never shy away from sharing the truth. We should absolutely pray for a certain winsomeness to characterize our lives, one that draws even those who disagree with us draws them even into further dialogue. But at the end of the day, we must never compromise right and wrong or sidestep the real issues. Jesus didn't. Matter of fact, Jesus made it a point to get to the real issue. And that's why it's really no surprise his refusal to bow down to political correctness. It's no surprise then why 
he encountered such hostility from the religious and political leaders of the day. Jesus claimed to be the source of truth, but Pilate wouldn't accept it. He knew Jesus was innocent. Even his wife, according to Matthew's account, tried to convince him to let Jesus go. Even Herod, according to Luke's account, likewise found no guilt in Christ. But instead of embracing the truth of Jesus and acting upon it, Pilate denied it. And though his mistakes were many, perhaps his biggest was in choosing expedience over truth. Opting for that which was politically correct, but morally wrong. So in conclusion, the, both Pilate and the Jews bore the guilt, bear the guilt of crucifying him in whom there is no guilt. The Jews' denial of truth reveals their deep-seated hypocrisy. How very sad that they chose a known criminal over the innocent Christ, a man who stole from others over him who gave and gave. Pilate's denial of truth reveals a person who prefers expedience over what's right, a man torn between two worlds, as we all are, the heavenly and the earthly, and chose the latter to his own demise. But I want to say, as I did last week, that these events uncover an even deeper reality that speaks not to Pilate or the Jews, but mainly to the purposes of God. As he's been from the beginning, Jesus is in full control here. To the point where he even will tell Pilate, this mighty Roman governor, that if I wanted your kingdom, my people would take it. But my kingdom's not of this world. He's fully aware of all that awaits him. He approaches the cross not as a helpless victim, but as the sovereign Son of God whose purposes never fail. He even says, for this purpose, for this purpose, Pilate, I'm standing before you right now bearing witness to the truth, and it is for this purpose that I have uh, come into this world. For this purpose, I was born and come into this world. We're going to explore this statement, this, this lone statement more in more detail next time. But for now, just be assured that even when it seemed like the Jews had gained the upper hand and Pilate was discarding truth at Christ's expense, Jesus Christ was still Lord of all. For God long purposed the exact time and place of Christ's cross. Even before the foundation of the world, God purposed to save people from their sins by His Son. Thankfully, God overcomes our wicked ways. Rulers, nations, and even the greatest of empires, even the mighty Roman Empire, comes and goes while God's sovereign, saving, and steadfast work still marches on in triumph today.
That's where we come. At this place in John's gospel, we come to see the Lord of heaven and earth preparing to lay his life down for those who are in bondage and in sinful earthly bondage that they may know the glories of heaven with God forever. Amen. God, so much to consider today. Thank you. Thank you for being so faithful to reveal uh, just the depravity and sinfulness of our own hearts and lives and, and so faithful to reveal uh, just how, how sovereign and in control you are even over the wickedness of men. How your purposes never fail that not a single one of them can be thwarted, that when you set your mind to do something, it is as good as done. I want to pray for these people, my dear, dear people, these friends, brothers and sisters, and I just ask, God, that you would continue to work the glorious truths of Jesus Christ, the glorious truths of your word in and through every nook and cranny of our lives. That we might be those who stand for what's right, give us strength and courage to do that, that we might be those who are unafraid to call wrong, wrong. Give us sensitivity and love and the ability to do that well. So that we might help people meet this Jesus and know him even as we do. And we ask it through his name. Amen.